welcome you to today's webinar, uh, South African Politics and Secession. Um, I'd like to hand you over to Seamus Duggan and Barnaby Fletcher from Control Risks to begin the presentation. Um, and everyone, please do get your questions warmed up for the end and uh, we'll speak later. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, please do keep in mind, as Alex said, that we would like this to be as interactive a session as possible. So keep the comments and questions uh, coming in. So let's get started. The ANC will, between 16 and 20 December, elect a president to succeed Jacob Zuma, and the successful candidate is likely to go on to become South Africa's next president at the 2019 general elections. Now, although political contestation and infighting are by no means new to South Africa's ruling party, particularly in the decades since 2007, the upcoming conference is certainly amongst the most fiercely contested in the party's history, and its outcome will undoubtedly be an important moment for South Africa's political landscape and indeed for the already complex business environment. However, and this is one of the points I think we'd like to stress today, the impact of South Africa's politics on business is likely to vary considerably by sector and often by company. And the reason for this variation is that despite an increase in political instability under President Zuma, South Africa has laid strong foundations for political stability. The 1996 constitution enshrines democratic rule based on universal suffrage and a clear separation of powers between the executive, legislature and judiciary. Five general elections have been held since the, apartheid, since the end of apartheid, all won by the ANC, and all have been generally declared free and fair by international observers. Moreover, the democratic system is established and there is a low risk of political violence. Nonetheless, South Africa is a young democracy that has yet to resolve a number of social and political tensions. High levels of socioeconomic inequality remain entrenched along racial lines, while the ANC hopes uh, the ANC comprises at least a number of conflicting ideologies and has struggled since it came to power to reconcile these and the demands of an increasingly discontented electorate. Indeed, the vulnerabilities in this young democracy have become most prominent during President Zuma's second term from 2014 to the, president, uh, to the present, which has been defined by a period of increased political instability resulting from infighting the ruling ANC. This infighting has been triggered by the growing influence of a government decision-making of specific political constituencies, currently traditionalists in the party and the beneficiaries of corruption aligned to President Zuma. The so-called capture of the state by these vested interests has seen increased opacity in the appointment of government officials, including cabinet ministers, the awarding of lucrative public contracts and the formation of government policy. And it is the influence of these vested interests which frequently headline major media and have undermined the ANC's support at the polls that has driven the succession battle within the ruling party, hindering government performance and fueling policy uncertainty along the way. The current front, front runners, as many of you will no doubt be aware, are Deputy President Saul Ramaphosa, who is seen as a pro-business reformer and has campaigned on an anti-corruption platform, and former African Union Commission Chair Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, who is widely seen as an extension of the status quo and has campaigned on a promise to radically transform the South African economy. The two candidates currently enjoy roughly equal levels of support amongst the party's voting delegates, and this has led to an effort by some within the party to forge a consensus around a unity candidate, presently in the form of ANC Treasurer General Zueli Mkize. I should add that the closeness of the succession battle and the high stakes for many who it will impact has also resulted in persistent rumors of vote buying, membership rigging, intimidation, 
and in the case of KwaZulu-Natal province in particular, a growing number of political assassinations. The question then, and what we'd like to address in today's webinar, is what does all of this mean for business? And there are two ways to approach this question. The first is by focusing on the current succession battle and what the outcome will mean for the business environment moving towards the 2019 general elections. The second approach, which my colleague Barney will touch on, is to set the issue of leadership aside and focus on some of the underlying weaknesses in South Africa, including the divisions within the ANC, the extent to which some institutions have been weakened, and the years it will take to repair the damage regardless of who the next president is and the consequences moving forward of a few years of poor economic management. So for now, I'm gonna focus on the conference and what we think the various scenarios are. And there are multitude of, multitude of possibilities for how the December conference will play out. One of these, for example, and I won't elaborate on this too much for the moment, but please do feel free to ask follow-up questions. But one of these scenarios is that the conference won't happen at all that a group of party officials most likely aligned in some way to Zuma and his preferred successor to Mini Zuma will use legal challenges to the provincial votes preceding the December conference to postpone it so that they are able to regroup. However, we think this is unlikely, not in the least because the Ramaphosa and the Mini Zuma camps are currently both pretty confident that they will be victorious in December. But setting that aside and focusing on things as they stand, the first scenario we want to touch on is that Ramaphosa secures further endorsements from key political figures, possibly including Zweli Mkize, and further divides KwaZulu-Natal province, and through this is able to secure the ANC presidency. He would then be helped along, he would be helped along the way by divisions among Zuma supporters in the Northwest province, Free State province, and in Pumalanga. And under this scenario, Ramaphosa's election as ANC leader would have an immediate positive effect on investor confidence though economic challenges are still likely to persist, with the economy hindered by the poor economic management of the last decade. So while the prospect of Ramaphosa's eventual national presidency would ease concerns over corruption and the weakening of government institutions, concerns would remain over low levels of economic growth and apparent lack of political will or capital from the Zuma state presidency to push through necessary reforms or last mate, of last mating parastatals or implement the required pro-growth policies most persistently high levels of government debt. Shame. And because um, of the resulting tensions, yes, sorry. Oh, sorry, this is um, Alex uh, um, uh, jumping in from sort of chair's side. Just um, a, a little bit more on, on round post. I was just wondering, um, and, and uh, listeners, we will be uh, sort of interjecting at various points throughout this. Um, just wondering, if, is this scenario the one that the international community is most likely to, in the sort of corridors of power, want to see happen? Uh, quite simply, I think the answer to that is yes. Like I said, Ramaphosa is seen as the more pro-business candidate. He's seen as a candidate who would allow greater free reign within the market, as one who won't intervene, and who has won, you know, and as a candidate who, quite frankly, doesn't have a lot of the baggage, doesn't have a lot of the rumors, the reported links to corruption, the reported links to patronage networks. And while we should stress, in Kwasazana Dlamini Zuma, who I'll, who I'll talk about in the moment, has also kept a distance from many of these rumors, the issue with her presidency is that she is linked to President Zuma in one way or another, and there's fears of contamination across the presidencies of the two. So from that perspective, absolutely, we would expect the international community to respond more positively to a Ramaphosa presidency. And, and there's no sort of extra concerns because Ramaphosa obviously has his own sort of fairly vast business interests. There's no um, uh, 
uh, people aren't waiting for something to come out of that? Do you think that sort of his rivals are, are digging furiously to try and find something that whilst he looks pro-business, that it might be almost too pro-business um, uh, for the voting base? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, there is a possibility, and you talk about his rivals looking for things. Uh, he has sort of let go of a lot of his business interests. Most most uh, obviously, he was involved in uh, McDonald's in South Africa. But I think the very obvious thing to say in response to that is that Ramaphosa is linked. He was a director at Lonman um, during the time of the Marikana killings. And this has been one of the biggest kind of albatrosses around his neck, around his neck is that he was on the board of a corporate that has been perceived by many people in the mining community uh, in rural South Africa to have committed, or have, not themselves, but have been have been parts of, of of these killings that were conducted or by police officials at the time. And this is the real challenge that Marikana, uh, that that Saul Ramaphosa faces, at least. And so far, his campaign has actually been fairly successful in dealing with these challenges. And in fact, when his rival and Kosozana Tlamini Zuma tried to go to Marikana, it was seen as a cheap political ploy, and she was chased away. Thank you very much. So, I, yeah, I think moving on, you know, just to wrap up the comments about Ramaphosa, is that because of the tensions between the party and the state president, we would expect to see Zuma forced to resign in 2018 if Ramaphosa became party president, uh, amid growing opposition to his state presidency from key party officials and organs. Although carefully managed and unlikely to result in unrest, Zuma's removal would be justified through the impact of his continued presidency on the ANC's prospects. And we sort of touched on it a bit, but the alternative scenario is that Domini Zuma is elected ANC president following a systematic branch level campaign by senior party officials in KwaZulu-Natal, Northwest, Free State and Mpumalanga provinces. Uh, Domini Zuma, as I've just stated, would probably dis avoid dismantling the existing patronage networks to ensure continued support for her candidacy in the 2019 elections. Uh, her failure to provide a coherent uh, pro-policy, pro-business policy agenda, however, would further erode investor confidence while corruption would probably continue to thrive. Meanwhile, there, there would be likely be, be persistent political pressure on state institutions, including the judiciary, and an attempt to weaken their independence. Indeed, the, the continued influence of Zuma and his allies within the ANC and the prospects of this continuing even after Zuma's presidency ends in 2019 would allow them to increase political pressure on nominally independent state institutions. Bodies such as the National, National Prosecuting Authority and the Anti-Corruption Task Team would increasingly be brought under the de facto control of the presidency, as Zuma would attempt to influence corruption investigations. Although the superior courts are able to resist such pressures to a degree, and have done so for a number of years, the diminished independence of other institutions would reduce confidence in the guarantee of fair redress in the event of business disputes. Seamus, is there any situation where the Supreme Court would be at the appropriate level of pressure would start undermining its independence? What would have to happen for that that scenario to present itself? Um, so if the lower echelons they can influence, but is there ever a scenario where the very top end of, of uh, the legal side of things could be um, uh, diminished uh, from its yeah, current sure. position? You know, if we talk about the constitutional court, which is the highest, there, there was what many people perceived to be an attempt to influence that court, uh, that court when the Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng was appointed a few years ago. He was perceived at the time to be too junior, to be too young, to be linked to Zuma in one way or another, uh, or to be too conservative for the position. However, he's come out as one of the government's fiercest critics, and he's sort of um, 
overseen some judgments against government that have been severely critical. And I suppose the answer to that is that, first of all, you know, the strength of these institutions, it's very difficult to undermine a lot of them through deployments of individuals. So, you know, ultimately the strength of these institutions is able to withstand an element of pressure. And the same sort of argument or similar kind of dynamic is probably being seen at the National Treasury, for example, at the moment, mm -hmm. where another political deployee, Malusi Gagaba, who is seen as being quite close to Zuma and has himself been implicated through the media and a number of the corruption allegations, has at the same time not undertaken a lot of the actions that people sort of alleged he would undertake, although we're still watching to see how that plays out in time. And then, so, you know, just, just wrapping up the scenarios, I think the final scenario, and it's far less likely to occur, we think, but it, its impact on the business environment would be considerably more negative. Um, and, and that is basically if Zuma refuses to resign or if Zuma stands for re-election. Uh, so under this scenario, Zuma decides to stand for a third term as ANC president, which he is legally allowed to do. He would base his candidacy on the need to unite the fractured party and his old supporters in the so-called Premier League provinces uh, would see him to victory, essentially. This, we believe, would lead to a split in the party as relations between pro and anti-Zuma campaigners would deteriorate uh, beyond repair. The ANC, now fully under the control of Zuma's supporters, we think, would respond with a raft of populist policies in an attempt to avoid its share of the national vote falling below 50% in 2019. So, can I push you for odds? Sorry, can I push you for odds on those three scenarios? Um, where if, if I was doing my sort of business planning, uh, the weight I assume is fifty. Yeah, sure. I mean, so <laughs> no, absolutely. That's a, that's a fair question. It's one we get asked very frequently. I think there's a key point to underline here, which is that the race is incredibly close at the moment. As I said earlier, there's roughly equal levels of support for Ramaphosa and Lumini Zuma amongst, amongst voting sort of branch members. If you had to push me for a number, I would probably say something like 42% for Lumini Zuma, 44, 45% for Ramaphosa, and the remaining is probably going to be actually Zueli Mkize, uh, or as a sort of alternative. And then the Zuma scenario being re-elected would probably be, you know, five to 10%. It's really an outlier. It's not something that's likely to happen. The day-to-day -day running of the ANC, the bureaucracy of the ANC, um, these processes are all controlled by people who are, for the most part, actually quite anti-Zuma. So we think that scenario is really small. But in terms of the, the two most likely scenarios, the Ramaphosa versus Lumini Zuma, it's very close. It's very difficult to call. It's going to be something like 45% place 40% or 45 to 43% essentially. So sort of moving on, and, and as you can tell from those numbers and from what we've just discussed, each of the above scenarios would have specific consequences for the business environment. If Ramaphosa wins, as you saw on the slides, we would expect a medium to long-term decline in sovereign risks and regulatory risks, but we would still expect to see an increase in investment restriction in the form of broad-based black economic empowerment. With Lumini Zuma, this would probably be accelerated, and we would also expect a continuing upward trend in sovereign risks. Given the differences in these scenarios and the impacts that the outcome of the leadership race is likely to have on the business environment, it is worth highlighting, I think, some of the key markers we should be on the lookout for to give us some kind of indication of who is going to emerge victorious in the next six weeks. Uh, before doing that, however, and I've left this slide up for a minute or two now, this intentionally complex or convoluted graphic which shows essentially the various influences that play into the ANC decision-making process, including around 
the party's next leader, who that next leader will be. And I think it's a great visualization of why we need to narrow the focus to key areas and trends. And so for the next couple of minutes, that's essentially what I'm going to do. So the first trend, or the first of these, is the question of whether or not the two front runners, Ramaphosa and Dlamini Zuma, are able to hold on to their key supporter bases. For Ramaphosa, this means securing the backing of delegates from the Eastern Cape, the Northern Cape, the Western Cape, Gauteng, and Limpopo provinces. For Dlamini Zuma, it means wrapping up the Free State and Northwest, while also ensuring that she is able to carry significant majorities in KwaZulu-Natal province and in Pomalanga province. So basically, this means looking in the media over the next few days, and if you see dissent, if you see branch nominations coming from provinces against how we expect them to vote. So we would expect Limpopo and Gauteng to back Ramaphosa. However, there's been a number of news stories of late saying that quite a few branches within those provinces are actually backing Dlamini Zuma, for example. And these kind of indications will give us uh, a good sense of who's going to emerge victorious. And as I'm saying at the moment, there are a number of, of indications that both candidates are fighting. Uh, both are even struggling to hold on to their key supporter bases. Branch nominations have begun to take place, and while they have for the most part, I think, proceeded in line with expectations, there have been a few notable surprises. Dlamini Zuma, for example, as I've just mentioned, is actually enjoying greater than expected support in Limpopo. If she is able to make further inroads into that province and split the vote in the Eastern Cape, which is seen as a big uh, Ramaphosa supporter, I think the numbers will be stacked very firmly in her favor. For Ramaphosa, the game has to be about eating into Dlamini Zuma's majority in KwaZulu-Natal and breaking Premier David Mabuza's hold on Mpumalanga province. In both cases, there is clear evidence to suggest that he is making progress. As it stands, he probably enjoys somewhere between 20 and 30% of the KwaZulu-Natal votes, while Mpumalanga appears undecided on who it should vote for president, although news reports this week suggest that the deal, has, that a deal rather, has been struck between Dlamini Zuma and Mabuza. And I think if Dlamini Zuma is able to secure Mpumalanga and secure the KZN vote, she is likely probably to emerge victorious in December. And the next two to three weeks, the next four to weeks, I think are going to be particularly critical uh, to watch. And then the final thing, and I've sort of touched on this already, but the final thing to watch out for is the extent to which a consensus exists in each of that South Africa's nine provinces. So historically, provincial leaders have been able to more or less influence the vote of the branches. However, the succession battle has so far been defined by divisions within the provinces and the inability of the ANC's provincial executive committees to significantly influence the branches. So I mentioned Northern Cape, for example, earlier. So here we've had a provincial executive committee firmly aligned to Ramaphosa. However, on the first weekend of nominations, more branches nominated Dlamini Zuma for the presidency than Ramaphosa. And these dynamics make it incredibly difficult to predict what will ultimately happen in December. Not in the least because this is fairly unprecedented that there's such a divide between provincial leaders and the branches. And this is made all the more difficult by the widespread claims of voter buying and membership manipulation. But on these, I should say, these reports were particularly prevalent in KwaZulu-Natal that voter buying was happening, that membership manipulation was happening. However, the province's decline in membership that was uh, registered in the recently concluded party audits, and the fact that Ramaphosa supporting branches were actually not sidelined, suggests that the rumors are actually somewhat unsubstantiated in the case of KwaZulu-Natal. Nonetheless, the large increase in Mpumalanga's membership has now attracted similar criticisms. 
Uh, I think, Alex, if it's okay with you, I'm going to leave the first part of the presentation there. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to more questions, but for the moment, I think I'm going to hand over to Barney, who's going to talk through how we see things developing after 2017 and who's going to touch on some of the sort of more structural issues going ahead. Thanks, Seamus. Over to you, Barney, and, and listeners, please do get those questions coming in. We've got a few uh, ticking up on screen now, but um, at the end of this, we'll be coming to you. So uh, thank you very much. And Barney, over to you. Great. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Seamus. So there is a lot of focus on individuals in South Africa and also on the short term. Everybody's focus at the moment is on a lot of the issues that Seamus just raised. Um, obviously, the December conference, but everybody is watching to see who will succeed Zuma. Everybody is trying to measure the influence uh, the Guptas have over the state or the impact a succession of finance ministers is having on investor confidence uh, or the populism of Julius Malema or whether the Democratic Alliance's first black leader can turn it into a winning party and overcome the traditional challenges it has faced in achieving widespread support. And these individuals definitely matter and so do the short-term events uh, and developments that they're playing into. For proof of that, you only have to look at how former Finance Minister Pravin Gordhan seemed to hold off a credit rating downgrade single-handedly when he was in office. But as important as it is to understand the, the Machiavellian maneuverings of individual ambitions, especially ahead of the conference, it is equally important not to overlook the underlying trends in the economy. Uh, in state institutions and in, in party structures. And Seamus has already touched upon these, uh, but I want to look at these in, in a bit more depth and a bit more long term. So first of all, just to highlight a, a few of these trends, there are many and South Africa is a very complex society, but there are a few key ones that we'll, we'll look at. Firstly, the ANC is divided and not just about who they're going to support in the December conference, but real divides in ideology. The party has always contained populists and pragmatists, communists and capitalists, nationalists and, and pan-Africanists, but these divides have widened on Zuma, partly because he has failed to provide a coherent unifying vision for the party, partly because of disagreements in how the party should combat a strengthening opposition, and partly because of economic stagnation, which has prompted fierce debate over how to move forward. Uh, it is, of course, easy to agree when things are going well and perhaps less easy when there's a clear need for change. Now, why are these divisions important, especially in the long term? Well, for all the political dominance of South, uh, the ANC in South Africa, South Africa's legislative process remains deliberately inclusive and there are multiple opportunities for various stakeholders, whether opposition parties or civil society groups or industry players, to slow, amend or stop the passage of a bill. Unless the ANC is unified behind the bill, getting it through this process is extremely difficult. Uh, and you can see this under Zuma. Under Zuma, some of the more radical populist proposals that we have heard from himself or various government ministers have actually not been implemented or only been implemented in a very diluted form. And this is arguably in some cases positive. But on the flip side, it means that his successor, whoever that may be, will find it difficult to make the necessary reforms. 
Secondly, the second trend we want to look at, and again, Seamus touched on this, is institutions and how they have become weakened. Certainly in the judicial systems, the higher courts retain an impressive competence and independence, but bodies such as the National Prosecuting Authority have seen their independence undermined. And then you have the financial institutions, uh, the National Treasury, the South African Revenue Service. They've been undermined by political interference and patronage. They are no longer as strong and as capable as they once were. And, and this feeds into the next point about poor economic management that we have seen, especially since 2014. For all the long-standing challenges that South Africa has faced that date back well before Zuma's presidency, these few key institutions have kept it broadly on track, and it is arguably the, the weakening of this wider structural context that has allowed the, the more personal actions of Zuma to have such an impact. The reason why it's important to understanding these underlying trends is that they'll persist long after any, any changes of, of leadership. There, there's a temptation sometimes that we at control risks notice when we're talking to clients to think that once Zuma goes, especially if he is replaced by the reform-minded and generally perceived to be pragmatic Ramaphosa, everything will improve quite quickly. But it is, of course, an unfortunate truth about cultures of competence and independence within institutions that these reputations are built over decades but can be destroyed within years. The structural challenges that South Africa faces will take a long time to properly address. Now, to illustrate this, uh, I will point actually towards our risk reward index, which we released in September, and of course we'd be happy to send out to anybody who has not seen it yet or is interested. This index provides a comparative assessment of risk and opportunity across various African economies, uh, pulling in both our, our political knowledge of control risks and the economic expertise of our partners, Oxford Economics and the African uh, Research Office, NKC African Economics. And to do this, we've weighed uh, various factors, political stability, policy certainty, market demand, currency issues, etc., against the kind of medium-term growth prospects, uh, economic structures and demographics. Now, the important thing for this discussion is that it looks at risk and reward over the next five years. So well after the December conference, well after we are currently, as I said, it's close, but uh, currently assuming that Ramaphosa is not only elected ANC president, but also after he takes over as state president in 2019 and has had a couple of years in office. Even so, you can see from this slide, South Africa remains a a fairly stagnant yellow circle bang in the middle. Uh, less risk than its major competitors uh, on the continent, certainly uh, far less risky than places like Nigeria, but also less reward and certainly falling well behind a number of smaller markets. And this is because for all the reforms and the improved investor confidence that may come with certainty over Zuma's succession issue, the structural issues remain in place and will take a long time to address. This is not to say that the risks facing investors in South Africa will not change over the five-year outlook, and it is certainly not to say that there will be no improvement. There, there will be. But 
It is important to note that this improvement will not be as fast as many people seem to be expecting, no matter what the outcome of ANC's national conference. Uh, and in this regard, it is perhaps useful to look at currency volatility, which is shown on the uh, slide currently up. Uh, we can see in the graph how the RAND has responded to the US dollar in response to political shocks, and, and most of them uh, instigated by Zuma. So uh, I, I won't go through all of them, but essentially when he fired the respected former finance minister Nene, when he fired respected former finance minister Gordon, when he has made certain speeches or survived no confidence votes. All of these have, have prompted uh, shocks to the RAND. And these currency fluctuations provide, a, in many ways, the clearest illustration of how the political actions of specific individuals have impacted on the economy. And this has caused real problems for companies across all sectors. But it is also worth noting that the signs that there are signs that the RAND is becoming increasingly resilient. Uh, so since December 2015, when, when this graph uh, uh, starts, the shocks to the RAND caused by political developments have become increasingly less severe and they have experienced faster recoveries. Now, overall, this is good news. Predictability, especially when it comes to exchange rates, allows companies to plan for the future. But if such indicators are increasingly immune to bad political news, and not just currency, but other indicators as well, they are likely also increasingly immune to good political news. So if importers are hoping for a return to the strong land of 2011, they will probably be waiting a long time. And similarly, if the government is hoping for a strong RAND to reduce the burden of foreign currency-denominated debt, they will also be waiting for a long time. We wouldn't be surprised if we see a strengthening RAND in response to, for example, Ramaphosa being elected as Zuma's successor. But it'll take a long time to achieve the, the heights it was once at. Um, Looking at implications for business, so obviously we've discussed some of the short-term implications. Seamus has gone through those. In the fairly brief webinar, uh, it is impossible to look at all the factors that can influence these risks, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And this is obviously a shame because what, again, I'd like to re-emphasize the point that Seamus made, the key point about South Africa is that it is a complex country and there can be no one-size-fits-all assessment of the risk profile. Uh, politically sensitive sectors such as mining or, or energy face far greater risks of political interference, face far greater government um, faces far greater pressure to put in black economic empowerment burdens on companies more so than, for example, retail or logistics companies. Uh, risks such as labor unrest will depend on trade unions active within a particular sector or indeed within a particular workplace and not just what trade unions are there but how many and whether they are competing for members. Corruption, for example, is obviously a significant issue for companies bidding for public tenders but actually in the, the private sector for companies that restrict themselves to private sector clients and avoid working with the government these issues are sometimes relatively easily avoided. So the risk profile, it, it's very important to understand your role, I think. And on that note, I will end with just 
well, that one final thought before we, we can answer some questions. Uh, understanding where your business is situated in the political landscape is crucial. So what ideological faction within the ANC of the broad spectrum of ideologies that it contains does the relevant minister and relevant government stakeholders responsible for whatever sector you're looking at fall into? How secure is that minister's position? What is his relationship with other government stakeholders? And also to private sector stakeholders. Uh, what political connections does a black economic empowerment partner hold? And will these raise integrity risks in the future? These are all the, the type of questions that investors need to know the answers to, uh, especially as the end of Zuma's tenure approaches and the political landscape uh, changes. But also looking forward in the longer term. The challenges South Africa poses to businesses are, are all surmountable and it's a lot of talk of risks and it shouldn't be forgotten that it still retains some really key advantages uh, compared to other markets on the continent and some huge areas for potential. But it becomes a lot harder to overcome the, the challenges and the hurdles that it places in your way if they are sprung on you as a sudden surprise. And I will uh, end it there and hopefully there'll, there'll be some questions for both myself and Seamus. Well, thank you very much, Barney and Seamus, thank you very much indeed. So we'll now start moving over to the questions. Um, we've had a few come in already, but please uh, do start sending other ones through and we'll sort of deal with them uh, as they come in. Um, I guess this is the first one for me, it's really um, uh, take us back to the sort of uh, electoral arithmetic earlier. Um, if, uh, as William Casey does, and again, apologies for my terrible pronunciation about all of this, um, will votes, in theory, would votes for him be taking uh, votes away from Ramaphosa or Lumi Zuma uh, should he continue to stand? And that's from Brad Cohn. Yeah, so that's. It's a really interesting point, and I think the short answer is that although he's perceived by many to be a kind of figure similar to Ramaphosa, he's more likely to take votes away from Dlamini Zuma, not in the least because he, is, he like Dlamini Zuma, um, relies quite heavily on KwaZulu-Natal province as his support base. And so if he ran against Dlamini Zuma, he would, for example, stand a better chance at splitting KwaZulu-Natal than she would. The second factor, you know, we mentioned two of the things to watch. The first thing was KZN, the second thing was Mpumalanga. And if William Kizer looks like he's got a chance of winning, he's more likely to be backed by the Mpumalanga branches than Flamini Zuma is. Um, they see him as an acceptable alternative. Um, and the premier of Mpumalanga, David Mabuza, hasn't yet been approached by Ramaphosa, so he's more uh, susceptible to Nkise at, the, at this point. So ultimately, he would win significant backing from the two largest voting blocks within the ANC, taking away from Plumini Zuma's vote. Thank you. And sort of moving back a bit, I guess, to, to the last part of the presentation, as we build up towards the uh, December conference, is there a sort of realistic risk of, of violent uh, protests that could disrupt logistical flows or uh, potential collateral risk for companies working in South Africa. Um, and that's from uh, Grégoire Duger. Yeah, so I mean, look, 
You would expect to see a slight uptick in the frequency of protests, uh, some of the or in the frequency of unrest. This happens around all elections. Um, they tend not to happen in urban centers and they tend not to happen near businesses and they typically don't directly target businesses. So they're an incidental threat usually to business assets, personnel um, operations in the vicinity of these protests. So yes, we'd expect an uptick, um, but this wouldn't uh, trigger any kind of wider or significant deterioration in the security environment. They would happen, they would be controlled, and then they would dissipate. And then maybe a few weeks later, we would see another protest somewhere. And this happened, as I said, in the build up to 2016. There were a few notable examples of violent protests that did sort of uh, infringe on urban centers or did come into urban areas or did sort of affect areas with commercial operations, but they tended to be isolated and they tended to be uh, fairly infrequent. Um, in the presentation, you um, both mentioned the sort of uh, impact on of all of these scenarios on particular sectors will be variant. Um, is, is there a one particular sector that we should be most concerned about? Is there one that's the most exposed? Is it, is it the mining sector? Yeah, I mean, so th there's three sectors that are probably amongst the most politically sensitive in South Africa. Mining is the first one. Uh, the renewable energy sector, given the plans around nuclear energy, is probably the second one. And then the third kind of vulnerable sector is going to be financial services. Um, and that's because all three of these sectors are seen as key in the economy and key areas where a more populist ANC could push for ownership and management uh, to be sort of diversified away from kind of a, a white concentration. So those would be the three sectors. If you have to push me for one, obviously the most politicized sector within South Africa, as we've seen with the pushing of the charter, is the mining sector. Thank you very much. So um, back onto the, the, the scenarios. Um, under the sort of less likely uh, Zuma scenario, you said that the, an ANC split might occur within sort of 18 months or so. Is there any other foreseeable scenario under Ramaphosa or Domini Zuma that uh, there could be a split within the party? That's from uh, Rolof Schumann. Uh, it's it's less likely. I think the, out of those two, I think if Lamini Zuma wins, there's maybe it's more likely that there would be a split than if Ramaphosa wins, because there are a number of people within the party who are disaffected with the status quo, and they would see a Lamini Zuma victory um, as a continuation of that, as I said, and we'll probably see a breakaway. I don't think the split would be as big or as significant as it would be if Zuma stayed on. I think you'd see something. So the ANC has had three splits uh, in the last sort of 23 years. The first one was the UDM, the second one was COPE, and the third one was the EFF. I would expect, expect a split under Ramaphosa or under the Domini Zuma presidency to probably be more in line with the EFF kind of in magnitude. Uh, and in fact, we'd probably expect the EFF to kind of attract some of those votes while the others would go to the DA. So as, as I said, it wouldn't be as significant as if Zuma himself stayed on. And it, moving to more of a, a, a regional picture uh, for a moment, um, in terms of Zuma's uh, allies in, in the rest of the Southern African uh, region, um, what's the sort of take from near neighbours uh, where, uh, do they have any p particular um, are they betting on any particular horses in this scenario in sort of um, South Africa's uh, nearby um, market, other SADAC uh, members? 
so, I mean, the interesting thing there was that, so under the previous president, or, or two presidents, but Thabo Mbeki, he made far more of a concerted effort to engage his neighbors, to engage the rest of the continent. He was far more interested in building those relationships. And in fact, when Zuma took over the presidency in 2009, we actually saw a deterioration in a number of relations with our neighbors. So, for example, Zuma took a far more assertive line on Zimbabwe than Mbeki ever did. Um, and he's been far less kind of vocal on the continent, and he's basically put less effort into building those relationships. So as a result, I think, uh, Barney may disagree, but I think there's probably, the, the, the neighbors, the rest of the region is probably fairly benign of, over who will win the ANC election. Barney, do you have any? Um, yeah, none of the leaders uh, around the wider region have made any indications, as far as I'm aware, or any suggestions or hints, however subtle, over who they would prefer. Um, obviously, Dalimi Zuma has that experience uh, as chairperson of the African Union. The reactions to, to her uh, chairmanship were, I suppose, most fairly described as mixed from the African uh, continent. There's, there's certainly some things that she did well and other things that uh, drew some ire from other countries who perceived her as putting South Africa's interests first. Ramaphosa has a pretty good uh, reputation for intervening in situations like Lesotho and the political crisis there. I think the point about the immediate region and the SADC region is that it is a lot of leaders who, and a lot of parties who have a long history dating back to their various liberation and independence struggles. And they are generally reluctant, I suppose, to, to be too critical of each other or to interfere too much in each other's affairs uh, unless a clear crisis comes about. Thank you very much. So we've got a, a, another question from Brad now. Um, do you think there's a risk of a reimposition of exchange controls in, uh, in, in a sort of in an NDZ uh, era where foreign currency outflows are likely to increase at the same time as a downgrade and um, causing SA to fall out of the EMBI and portfolio investment to dry up, putting pressure on the current account? Um, I think that's... I could certainly see the the reasoning behind that question and this uh, and any thoughts that that may take place. It's, it's a very good question. Um, I think that although there's certainly going to be an increased risk uh, in that scenario, it seems unlikely that any capital controls or exchange controls will be introduced. The South African Reserve Bank is another one of these institutions that we met, uh, mentioned that may be coming under pressure but has a long record of fairly competent financial management and monetary uh, policy management. It has on numerous occasions over the past few years reiterated that it does not target a specific exchange rate and that it will not intervene in the currency market to shore up the rand's value. It has stated this repeatedly and explicitly. Um, and South Africa has already suffered some, some pretty severe depreciation in the rand. Uh, and 
that's tested the willingness of the South African Reserve Bank to you know, abide by this principle of not interfering. And it has, again, repeatedly not, not only not interfered, but issued statements uh, saying that it wouldn't interfere. Um, two other points is that although there are definitely these economic pressures, uh, there are some signs for optimism despite the ongoing challenges, notably the slight signs of recovery in commodity prices that we're seeing, which should, should strengthen uh, should help strengthen or at least stabilize uh, the currency. Secondly, there is a general consensus throughout the region that capital controls or exchange controls are not necessarily the way to go. Over the past few years, you've seen a lot of the countries in the region suffer from depreciating currencies in Mozambique and Zambia. Um, I mean, I, I won't go into Zimbabwe, that has entirely different currency problems. Um, and all of them have generally avoided introducing significant capital controls. Zambia has avoided them altogether. Mozambique has imposed some extremely limited ones, but resisted pressure to go, go further. Angola has actually, in many ways, started to liberalize its, its semi-pegged currency. Again, that's a slightly different situation. But there is a a wider recognition, it seems, that, that these are perhaps not the way forward and that the general trend that we've seen over the longer term, the past kind of decade or so, of liberalizing currency regimes, liberalizing exchange rates, is the, the, the route to follow. Um, so, as I said, definitely pressure on the Reserve Bank to introduce some kind of controls will increase. There's definitely that risk, but if I had to make a judgment call, I'd say it's probably unlikely. Thanks very much. Um, so we've got time for just a couple more questions. Uh, we've got one here from Robin Gwynn. Um, in a uh, Dlamini Zuma winning scenario, is there any possibility that she might be more pragmatic and reforming in practice than her campaign is suggesting? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I think it, there's every possibility that that will happen. Um, so, you know, a point that we've stressed to a lot of people on Dilmini Zuma is that she is, in fact, a fiercely independent person, and she's a very efficient bureaucrat. Um, and, and she famously has a bit of a temper and doesn't take nonsense and doesn't sort of allow herself to be bullied around. What we've seen in the past sort of few months is that she's very much been in campaign mode uh, to the point of being a pretty bad candidate, I think, because she's just adopted wholly factional language. I do think the Ramapo uh, sorry, the Flamini Zuma we would see in the presidency wouldn't be the same as the Flamini Zuma we're seeing on the campaign trail. I do think she would be more independent, and I do think she would be more pragmatic. However, the crux of the matter is that she will be tied to the interests who ran her campaign, who lobbied for her, who would be in other leadership positions within the ANC, within government, and this would make it difficult for her. So she would be caught in a fairly difficult place if she did become president, even if she wanted to be more pragmatic. Thanks. So on a sort of final note then, this is um, from Steve Lewis. I think looking more uh, at the sort of next uh, round of elections, is there ever a sort of a scenario where um, the DA do rather more better than, than we expect? Is there a... Um, uh, you know, or are we sort of seeing them at nearing maximum 
power given the weakness within the ANC? Yeah, so this this is something we thought about quite a bit after the August 2016 municipal elections or local government elections. And basically for the DA to do better, they will have to convince long lifetime ANC voters to not abstain if they're disgruntled with the ANC, but to actually participate in the vote. And you know, looking at trends, it, it's not great for the DA. I think they got around 20, 23% at the last election. I would put a cap maybe at the future elections. I think they're likely to get at best around 28%, 29%. And a lot of that isn't just because of declines in the ANC or their inability to reach new voters. It's also because a lot of the voters who leave the ANC are going to be more willing to vote for the economic freedom fighters. And so while I think the DA would probably go from around 23 to 28%, uh, at the same time, we'd probably see the EFF rise from around the current 8% to 10 to 12%. So they'll be picking up some of that slack. So really, both of the opposition parties, and you know, we should say the EFF themselves, have really struggled to make inroads, and they were quite disappointed with their results at the 2016 elections. Both of them are struggling at the moment to gain new voters, uh, which is why the future of South African politics, I think, in the next sort of five, 10 years, is going to be one of coalitions between the opposition movements uh, and uh, potentially with the ANC. Well, thank you very much indeed. And um, I'm afraid that wraps up uh, the uh, course of events today. Um, we are obviously available for any further questions or contacts, and you'll be able to get in touch with the control risks team um, afterwards. Um, so thank you, Seamus. Thank you, Barney. And thank you, everyone, for attending uh, today's webinar, South African Politics and Succession. Um, uh, if you have any questions, just the email will be um, events at controlrisks.com. That's events at controlrisks.com. And we'll able, aim to sort of follow up on those as soon as possible. Um, after the webinar, you'll receive a survey on the presentation. And it'd be great if you could um, fill that in as, as honestly as you can uh, for your feedback. Um, and uh, you'll also receive a follow-up email with a link to a, the recording of, of today's session. It will also be available on the um, Business Council for Africa and Best Africa podcast feed, and we'll make sure links for that are circulated as well. So um, on behalf of uh, Control Risks and uh, the Business Council for Africa and Best Africa and our presenters, thank you very much for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>